This is a podcast from Rover. Now I'm a farmer and I'm digging, 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 digging. G'day everyone, how are we getting on on this Thursday? Welcome into Rex today. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to be talking to Mr. Biodiversity, that is David Norton. We're having a chat about the National Policy Statement for Indigenous Biodiversity, among other things. He is a wealth of knowledge, this man, so stay tuned for that in just a moment. Then it is National Volunteer Week, and we're going to have a catch-up with Tim Gale from the Game Animal Council about what they're doing to recognise all the volunteers out there in the hunting world. So that's all to come here on Rex today. All right, but first up on the program today, Professor David Norton has over 40 years' experience in New Zealand ecology and conservation across public and private land. Now, he retired from his work at the University of Canterbury last year and he moved to Lake Hawea. But uh, people tell me he seems to be busier than ever with his own consultancy business, Biodiversity Solutions, and he's known for his work with native biodiversity within primary production systems, especially around sheep and beef farms. He joins us now. David, a pleasure. How are you? Well, I'm good, thank you, and great to talk to you. So, firstly, let's just get a bit of background here. Your involvement with farming and biodiversity, I imagine it's a fairly uh, open question with a, with a rather lengthy answer, but if you could sort of, uh, you know, give us the, the Coles Notes version of, of your background there. Sure. Look, I worked at Canterbury University for 40-odd years um, teaching ecology and conservation, and I think over that time I, I got increasingly interested in, in how we manage um, native plants and animals, in the, those parts of New Zealand that are not in the conservation estate, so farmland in particular, uh, they, there wasn't much work going on in those areas, and it seemed to me like they were really important. And I, I look, I've, I've got a strong affinity with rural New Zealand, and, and I think there are some really awesome opportunities to get some really good outcomes for biodiversity by working with farmers and, and helping them understand what they have. Um, biodiversity on Farms programme, what is this exactly? Yeah, that was a, a MPI-funded program with uh, Silverfern Farms and Fonterra Living Water as our industry partners, and it was designed to um, try and provide more information, more resources for farmers um, to help them manage biodiversity on their farms, and also to help train some young ecologists who can, you know, follow up and, and help support farmers. And that that project was an 18-month project that's just coming to the end now. But I think it's done a really good job in, in trying to move things forward and support farmers through that, that resource provision and, and training those young ecologists. So there's obviously the Indigenous Biodiversity Strategy and in relation to that, of course, SNAs, and that's a topic of conversation that uh, isn't too far away from agricultural circles at the moment. How is SNAs sort of core to uh, the Indigenous Biodiversity Strategy? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, the, the Indigenous Biodiversity Strategy or National Policy Statement is, is primarily about trying to identify those areas in New Zealand that have got high values and requiring councils to manage them in a consistent manner. Um, the, the problem with, with, with the whole National Policy Statement, I mean, it hasn't been, been finalised yet, it's still in draft form, yeah. is that it assumes that by calling something significant, it will somehow be OK. And I, I think I feel that's fundamentally flawed because... Assuming something significant or calling it significant is only the first step in the conservation journey, and, and really it needs to be looked after. And, and I think the problem with the national policy statement and, and the whole SNA approach is that it, it just makes this assumption that, well, we'll call it significant, we'll put all these rules on, and everything will be okay. But it's not actually about supporting and engaging with farmers and helping them understand why it's important and helping them manage it. And that, that, that's what our work focuses on. Mm, that's very interesting. Uh, is farm biodiversity 
about protecting what's there or is it about reintroduction or is it a bit of both? It's definitely a bit of both, but it's more than that as well. To me, it's about actually um, acknowledging what what wonderful things we have in, in Aotearoa New Zealand. Um, it's about looking after what we have. It's about enhancing what we have, but it's about doing that within the context of you know, this is our story. This, this is what makes New Zealand different. This is why we're not Australia or why we're not Europe. This mm. is what we can use to, to market our products, whether it be meat or wool or dairy products overseas. You know, this is how we're looking after our environment. You know, to me, biodiversity is important for much more, you know, it's important for its own sake. It's fundamentally important for its own sake, but it's also an important part of our story. So the thing is... Um you know, I guess it can be seen in some regards as something of a box-ticking exercise, but what you're saying is it's far deeper than that. It runs a lot deeper. Absolutely. Look, councils look at it as a box-ticking tick, box exercise. <laughs> and basically, they draw a line on the map. Yes, that farmer's been told what he, what he or she can or can't do. But to me, it's a journey. Biodiversity mm. is a journey, and I, I think farmers... Um, just just like when they go on a journey to to, to improve their 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 you know reproductive um, potential of their cattle or sheep or whatever you know play the genetics it's a journey and, and biodiversity is a journey and I think the benefits from biodiversity are going to be massive because it is our point of difference um, to many other parts of the world we have this unique flora and fauna and it's on our farms. So in relation to that then uh, in terms of uh, you know farmers building biodiversity management into their day to day and I know that you've got. Some some really good videos. I saw some uh, online in relation to. I think they might have been presented uh, by Beef and Lamb, um, and and uh, addresses that uh, for the ones I've seen to a point. But in terms of incorporating that biodiversity management into day to day management on farm, what are some things that people can look at here? Yeah, um, look, there's some really simple steps. Know, know what you have. Um, I think it's really important to actually understand what you have. Don't don't try and pretend it's not there because it is there. So know what you have. Um, setting yourself some goals. Where, where do you want to go with biodiversity on your farm? Um, thinking about what might be the threats and risks to, to achieving those goals. Looking at management in a stage manner. You know, you can't do it all in one day. You know, do it over multiple years and then monitoring what you achieve. Have you got any sort of examples on farm biodiversity protection that you've seen uh, that have really impressed you um, so people can sort of get a tangible, uh, I guess, example of, of what you're talking about? Oh, look, there are many. I mean, you know, obviously there's an incredible amount of planting going on on, on farms, mm-hmm. um, whether it just be strips along the sides of, of fences or whether it's paddock corners being filled in or whether it's larger blocks. And just driving across the Canterbury Plains even today, or I was up in Taranaki recently, the amount of new planting going in is just phenomenal. So that, that would be one really good example. The second example would be all of the fencing off that's going on of, of remnants, of wetlands, of streams, and the recovery that's occurring in those areas. And I guess the third example would be the amount of predator control that farmers are doing that, that again, is just not being recognised. I mean, I think I'm, I'm always astounded by just how many, you know, mustard traps or possum traps I'm seeing out there. And farmers are doing these not because they're a problem for farming per se, but because they're a problem for the biodiversity on the farm, because they got bitten in their wetlands or, or they're worried about 
um, you know, particular reptiles that might be on their farm or, or whatever. Mm. I think they're all good. There's so many of those examples out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, and they're really good ones that you've mentioned there. Look, the uh, the, the, the predator one, um, you know, really uh, fascinates me because um, I've done quite a bit of uh, stuff with uh, Predator Free 2050 and uh, some of the technology that's emerging around that now is is actually quite extraordinary. There's some amazing stuff down here in, in the Otago Southern Lakes area where we've where we've got um, you know people setting up remote traps that they can they can you know interrogate you know from from their office and they can see what's going on and you know the efficiency we're able to achieve is much much better now than it was a few years ago. But just to add another issue in there beside that, don't underestimate the impact of deer and goats. Deer and goats are having a phenomenal impact on on our biodiversity, and I think every farmer I go to. Is, is really frustrated by, by deer and goats and, and the impacts they're having. And I think that they're a challenge because they require coordinated management. You can't manage them at a farm scale. You've got to manage them at a catchment scale. Mm. That's a good point, actually. Um, look, I was having a chat as well in relation to that with Darren Clifford the other day from Premium Game, and uh, the topic of wallabies came up. Jeez, uh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's similar. I mean, they're, they're basically the possums on the ground. Yeah. So they feed in a very similar way. But I think that working together and, you know, and it, I couldn't emphasise this enough, working together in catchment groups is so important for farmers. You know, don't try and do it on your own. Work with your neighbours, work in catchment groups, share experience, because the problems we face are at catchment scales, things like deer um, or wallabies or weeds. And, of course, many of the birds and the plants also move around at catchment scales. So we need to manage the whole catchment. Uh, and it's interesting because when it comes to uh, those catchment areas, and I've said this ad nauseum because there's been so many examples of catchment groups and areas being literally the most effective uh, in terms of you know getting any particular area uh, into some sort of shape or um, you know ecological what would you call it uh, favourable conditions. Um, that that's really the uh, the where, where the success has been found. Look, a- absolutely, and I mean catchment groups. And well, one of my biggest fears at the moment is that we're like we're seeing jobs for nature disappearing, and all that funding. And and I think supporting catchment groups, whether it's through jobs for nature or whether it's through direct funding of catchment groups, is going to be a far more efficient way to get good biodiversity outcomes across New Zealand than putting walls into district plans. Yeah, the um, another good example of that is uh, wilding pines. Um, I've spoken to a couple of people and they've made tremendous inroads uh, with that government funding into uh, you know, the eradication or at least keeping wilding pines under some sort of control in certain areas, but then the funding, uh, just as things start yeah. to you know start to look good, the funding gets taken away. And it's getting worse. I mean, all the upsurge in carbon farming is just creating... I mean, radiata pine is, is potentially the worst wild species of them all. Yeah. And, and you know, farmers are going to have to deal with this. All those nice restoration plantings, the regenerating stands, the carnica and, and whatever, are all going to be um, subjected to ongoing invasion, particularly when we've got these untended stands of, of, of pine trees for carbon. Um, I think there's some major issues out there. So working with catchment groups again is going to be so important and we need to support that really, really strongly. I know that you um, have been speaking or had spoken about uh, those flood events, particularly uh, mm-hmm. around you know the, the Tolaga Bay scenario. You went there in yep. 2018 after that particular event and uh, I know that people have spoken to you about the most, most recent mm-hmm. one and that's a classic illustration of the point that you just made. 
Yeah, it is. And I think it also feeds into another really important point. So I think we, we need to be trying to create more diverse landscapes. So this brings it back to native biodiversity. I think native biodiversity can help create more diverse landscapes. We're not trying to convert farms into native forests. We're trying to create diverse landscapes in which native biodiversity is an integral part. And that will provide that resilience against those sorts of storm events. It'll potentially provide other additional income streams. It'll provide more shade and shelter. You know, that idea of diverse landscapes, multifunctional diverse landscapes, I think is something we've got to really, really go with in New Zealand now. Professor David Norton with us on the programme. Um, yeah, interesting uh, points that you've raised all around in terms of uh, the message that you're putting out there, uh, the biodiversity message and the uptake on that, the reception from uh, you know people out there in rural New Zealand, uh, the farming community. What's that been like? How are your ideas being received at large? I think there's a there's a massive interest in biodiversity. I think the challenge is that farmers feel um, huge pressure on them from all of the regulation that's out there. And I think also, you know, despite projects like the Farming of Native Biodiversity Project, we need to give farmers more support. My, my vision, I, I wrote a book about this 20 years ago, uh, 10 years ago now, of an Australian colleague, and we argued that what we should have is, 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 is ecologists who are available throughout rural New Zealand, hundreds of them, mm. who can provide free, independent advice to support farmers. Now, our project produced a couple of them. Um, and, yeah. you know, we, we need an awful lot more. But I think catchment groups are moving that way, and I think that's where we're going to go. But, but farmers, are, you know, farmers are feeling the pressure from regulation. That, that we need to get the policy settings changed around the ETS. We need to get incentives in to make biodiversity more, more attractive. And we need to support farmers. And I think if we do those things, farmers are really keen to do it. Farmers love the land and they're really keen to look after our biodiversity. Mm, Yeah, it's a good point. That's a fair point as well. Um, uh, Regenerative farming. Um, I've uh, read a a piece where uh, I think someone spoke to you uh, for an article about this. Your your thoughts? It's always a vexed issue when I bring it up, but uh, people have wild and varying views on it. Regenerative farming is part of a continuum. Um, I think that's the way to look at it. It's not one or the other, and I think that's what's caused all of the all of the sort of um, you know a vexed discussions, shall we say? Yeah. I, to me, to me, regenerative farming is about thinking holistically about your farm, thinking about how all the parts of the farm interact with each other. So thinking about the bush remnant or the the wetland and how it interacts with livestock, how it interacts with the birds that are flying across your farm. It's mm. taking a holistic view and it's being prepared to adapt and change your management depending on what you learn. So not doing what your parent did, parents did or your grandparents did, but changing your management in response to your observing and looking at it as a whole system. That, that's how I see regenerative farming. Yeah, it's a good explanation of it. And uh, yeah, that's the thing. It's not a very simple thing to uh, to pin down. But when you look at it in those terms, I, I feel it's uh, a lot more understandable. Um, Hawea, how are you finding uh, the move the move around uh, around Lake Hawea? It's, uh, it's a pretty nice place. It's an awesome place to live. I mean, look, um, the mountains are our first love and, and being close to the mountains and the tramping, having lived in the city most of my life, uh, is absolutely wonderful. And it's really nice. I, mean, I work with high country farmers and it's nice to have some of them on my doorstep here as well and just be in this environment. I'm, I'm very fortunate and, and, and feel very lucky that I can live here. It's a privilege. Have you got a favourite place in the South Island high country? Oh, I wondered if you might ask. <laughs> <laughs> 
the, the whole the whole the whole South Island High Country. Look, I mean, I've worked on some wonderful properties, and of course, I've tramped and climbed in some wonderful mountain ranges, and and they're all beautiful. I love the the Otago Mountains. I love the the Canterbury Mountains. I love the West Coast. Look, they're all gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Good diplomatic answer, David. Look, I appreciate your time on the show. This is Professor David Norton and uh, his uh, consultancy business is Biodiversity Solutions. An absolute pleasure to have you on the program. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye.